from Los Angeles, California, it's Music Friday Live, brought to you by Solar City, your source for clean, sustainable energy. I'm your host, Patrick O'Heffernan, and the Music Friday team is on vacation today, so we are treating you to your favorite classic interviews, the ones that uh, your emails tell us you really like. So we will talk today with Danny Tedesco. He's the director of the film The Wrecking Crew about the studio musicians in the 60s who played on those records that your parents bought, even though somebody else's name was on the cover. And also we're going to talk to the two women who created Crimson Calamity, Mallory Trinnell and Lauren Harding. They're two hot women, hot musicians, and they play country rock like you've never heard it before. So stay tuned. This is Patrick O'Heffernan, your host on Music Friday Live, and like I said, that the, the Music Friday team is on vacation this week, so uh, what you're hearing are two classic interviews today, but they're, they aren't live, so don't call in, don't email in, because, you know, we're not here, <laughs> all right? You're, just, you're listening to us, but uh, we're not really here. Now, we're going to take a break right now and to welcome in our affiliates. And when we come back, Denny Tedesco, director of the Fabulous Music documentary, which incidentally is now in theaters, will be with us. That's the Wrecking Crew. Our troops aren't the only ones fighting right now. Thousands of military families are in crisis. They're fighting financial battles, how to pay the bills, even how to keep their homes and feed their children. You can help by supporting Operation Homefront, a national nonprofit that provides emergency assistance for military families and for wounded warriors when they come home. To learn more about how you can help, go to OperationHomefront.net. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan, host of Music Friday Live, welcoming our listeners on the CyberStationUSA.com network and the stations that uh, they syndicate our program to. And of course, those programs are heard later in the day. They're not live, but I also want to welcome everybody who's listening to us live online on the Block Talk Radio Network, except we're not live today. Uh, the team here is on vacation, so even though it sounds like I'm live, I'm not. Uh, so don't call in and don't email in. But right now, you're going to hear one of those great classic interviews. This is from March of this year, and it's with Danny Tedesco, and he's with The Wrecking Crew. In the late 40s and early 50s, thousands of men who had returned home from World War II found that the Midwest farms and southern towns and even the Texas oil patch could not support their families. So they headed to Southern California to work in the burgeoning aircraft industry, often with guitars and drum kits strapped on the top of their cars. Well, when they got there, they found Hollywood, year-round sunshine, surfing, bikinis, bikinis, an auto-obsessed culture, and an attitude of openness and risk-taking. So when the songs like Shake, Rattle, and Roll and Rocket 88 and Rock Around the Clock began breaking down the barriers against the new rock music form, they embraced it, popularizing what was first called the California sound and then we simply call rock and roll. Well, at the center of that revolution was a group of 20 or 30 men and one woman who were the session musicians on thousands of the recordings from the 50s to the 70s, the birth years of rock and roll. In addition to playing the music on the 45s and the albums that bore the names of famous bands like The Monkees and The Beach Boys and Sonny and Cher, they sometimes taught those people how to play. The titular leader of this shifting group of musical geniuses was the brilliant and funny Tommy Tedesco, who died in 1997. With us today is his son, Denny director of the film The Wrecking Crew, about his father and the musicians who brought the nation rock and roll. Denny, welcome to Music Friday Live. Denny? Hello. Yes. Hi. How are you? Welcome <laughs> Welcome to Music Friday Live. I can't believe it's Friday. <laughs> I know. It goes fast. It, it, well, Denny... First of all, uh, let me thank you for this film. Um, I know it took you 18 years to complete, but I am so glad yeah. you did it. It is literally a documentary on the soundtrack of my life. In the 50s and 60s, yeah. I would uh, take the quarters I earned from mowing lawns and bagging groceries and go to the Westchester Corner record store and buy 45s that your dad played on, although, of course, I didn't know it at the time. 
I'll bet yeah. you're hearing a lot of that as this film gets near its L.A. release this Friday. It's, it's you know, it's amazing because we all, you know, it's, it is a musical journey for so many people. And what's interesting to realize, um, one song for you, let's say, I'll just say Good Vibrations. You know, it means something to you that may, that's different than me. It's a bookmark in my life and your life. You know, instantly when you heard that song, where you were, where you lived, who you were dating, or you know what I mean? And it's, it's really cool that, uh, that um, you know, rock and roll at that time really meant so much to people. And still does. Well, yeah. I, I, know, yeah. I know that you were kind of reluctant to do the film after the short little film you did about your father. So what convinced you to, to go back to the archives and the edit room and the licensing forms and do a full-length film? Well, that, that's a good thing. What, what happened was in, uh, when I was at Loyola Marymount in 1983, you know, I did a project on my dad. I was actually a friend that wanted to do it. So we did it on my dad. And it wasn't actually, it wasn't, it was okay. You know, it was a student film. But what came out of that, though, was something, you know, some great footage. So cut to, that's 1983. We cut to 1996. My dad at this point, is, you know, he's had a stroke. Um, and I always wanted to tell the story about my dad and his friends, you know, called the Wrecking Crew. And then they gave him uh, that diagnosis of terminal cancer, and I was like, Ugh. you know, it was like, you know, it was so shocking to hear those words. And I thought, well, we had taught, and my wife Susan and I talked about this recently, you know, trying to put yourself back in that time period. We must have been talking about doing something because we jumped on it pretty quickly. And we put together a film crew, you know, knowing that let's just get it on in, on film and see what, where we go with it. And we basically put my dad, Hal Blaine, Plaz Johnson, Carol Kate, a round table, and I just let him talk. And, you know, I never saw my father really play in the studios, you know, as a kid, but I always saw I always saw musicians talk, and that's what they were like. They would just sit there and razz each other. So it was like <laughs> kind of, you know, and I call it the quartet without instruments. <laughs> so that was the first day of shooting. You know, not knowing what, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, we knew didn't have much time with my dad. You know, and I kept what? building on it. And I, you know, he never saw a piece of one film. He didn't see one frame of the film. So that was unfortunate. Well, uh, it, it might interest you to know that, that uh, I was at Loyola while I was listening to your dad play on some of those records. Although it was Loyola really? then. It wasn't Loyola Marymount. Yeah, you yeah. didn't have the Marymount in front of you, huh? No, no. We did okay without the girls, right? Well, <laughs> in, in retrospect, let me ask you, um, was it a good thing or a bad thing that the film took so long? I mean, did the time allow you to, to, to achieve some things in the film that you might have missed if, it, if you'd done it in just a year or so? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I say, it's funny because I say this in a couple of ways. It's the greatest thing that it took this long, not financially, you know, it killed us. But the, the best thing that ever happened was if you took the same film right now, but we have exact same cut and we had released it 10 years ago, I don't think it'd have an audience that it does now for many reasons. One, other films that came before us, even though we started before them, kind of like, you know, teased an audience. We have 20 Feet to Stardom, Standing in the Shadows, Muscle Shoals, all these great films. That woke up to a lot of people. But also what more important was, I was able to build an audience over the years, going, you know, showing this film from 2008 on to audiences, you know, audiences around the country and for sneak previews. I always call it sneak previews. Fundraisers. We were raising money as we went along. So what we were doing is every time I go to a town, you know, we'd have a screening, raise some money, pay off a label, pay off a, a publisher. But what was more important as well, not more important, but as as important was building an audience of fans behind it that were cheering us on. So I would oh. get their email addresses and I would stay in touch with them. I would give them outtakes. Um, well, let's, we let's, have, let's, hope, let's hope that this yeah. broadcast today is going to build an even greater audience um, Oh, I, I want to ask. You know, much, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to ask you about licensing. Uh, licensing music uh, for documentaries is always the hardest part, and sometimes it's the killer of documentaries absolutely. about bands. So, how how was it for you? Did it did it cost a fortune and turn your hair gray? Yeah. Well, it, hair gray. Yes. Luckily, I still have hair. Um, 
uh, it was, you know, when we always knew music was going to be a problem. Not a problem. I didn't think that. That's, that's not true. I never thought music was going to be a problem. I thought sensibility would come across, you know, and, you know, but there is no sensibility when it comes, nobody's sensible when it comes to music and, you know, documentaries and filmmaking. But when I, Susie and I started doing this, we would be friends, not, you know, we would have, have lunch with labels and publishers, have groups together, just to tease them with the 14-minute piece. Just, guys, we know it's going to be something down the line, but I just want you guys to see it. You know, so people started knowing about it. it but it wasn't until 2008 that we really needed to license this stuff and quickly. You know, at that point, they had all known about the project. And one publisher, you know, she gave me a price. You know, my initial price that she gave me was $10,000 a song. Ooh. And I said, I am not spending $10,000 for four seconds of Donka, Shane. It's just not worth it. No Donka. You know, so we kept going. And, and everybody's on most favorite nations, meaning everybody's going to get the same. So we paid for the festival use, which was, you know, still costly, but still we had to do it. You know, you can't, you know, the thing is, I always say to people, music is not supposed to be free. If you want it to be free, you play it, you know, yeah. yourself. But it's still a business. That's how my yeah. dad, you know, went to work. He got paid for what he did. You know, you bought that. When you went to the store, you bought that 45. I thank you because that gave my dad more work. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's yeah. the, that's how it all works. Yeah, I know. I, so I when we got to that point, you know, of really getting that, you know, final bill going, I had to renegotiate with people. It was the publishers and the labels that helped me. It was one publisher, Pamela, over at Bug Music that said to me, she said, listen, you've got to come back. This is in 2010 when we realized we're never going to get this film out there unless we pay this thing off. And she said, you have to come back, renegotiate with me. You need to come back and say, you know, make it tougher on me because you're never going to get this made. And, and I, she helped me draft it, and she signed off, and she said, okay, now go get everybody else. Well, I'm, you know, I'm certainly she glad she believed in the project. I'm certainly glad you know? she did and, and you did. Um, yeah. In addition to um, the licensing, you also had to get interviews with stars. And uh, you, you did. Yeah. You got a number of stars. One of the most cogent and thoughtful, at least to me, were the conversations you had with Cher. Now, she seemed to have a yeah. great affection for the Wrecking Crew and for the film. Yeah. How was she in the interviews? Awesome. Right. That's a very, it's funny because that's always one, everybody always says, how did you get Cher? How did you get these stars? And the funny thing about Cher was years ago, we were working on a video. I was working on this uh, video, a rock video with Cher, one of her many, you know, uh, hits, you know, in the 80s. And I remember standing next to Cher and Cher was, you know, very businesslike. Cher's you know, it doesn't mess around. And I remember standing intimidated by her as a grip. I wasn't a director. I was, an, it was just a lowly grip. And I said to her, I said, Cher, um, stuttering probably. I said, my dad worked with you in the, in the day with Phil Spector. She says, who's your dad? I said, Tommy Tedesco. And all of a sudden, that girl that was Cher on set in 1985, all of a sudden became Cher of 16. And she goes, oh, my God, Tommy and Hal and, and, and you know, Don. And, she, you know, she melted. She became the girl that she was at the time. So I knew there was a chance that Cher would respond. So when we went to her agent, and I asked her agent, and I think the agent just asked out of courtesy for me because I knew the agent, and she knew my wife. And when she came back, I could hear it in the agent's voice. Cher said yes, as if, like, she never says yes. You know, I'm sure they could hit up all day long for interviews. So when I got to do Cher, it was great. I only had 11 minutes. It was a roll of film, but she filled it. You know, Boy, she, she ever. 11 minutes with it. You got the best out of her that I have I've ever seen in, in interviewing people like her. Well, in addition to playing the music on albums for famous bands like the Mamas and the Papas and the Monkeys and the Beach Boys, um, your dad uh, and the Wrecking Crew also created some bands, too. Could you tell us about yeah. the, uh, the so-called Millie Vanillis? Yeah, exactly. Millie Vanillis. I call them, when Millie Vanilli hit and I asked everybody, those guys, you know, I said, what about Millie Vanilli? And they laughed because that was what they did all the time. You know, let's go back in 19, you know, the early 60s, rock and roll. 
it's a product to these labels. So a lot of times, you know, they come up with ideas. And one of the ideas, this one guy uh, who was known at Liberty Records, he was producing the Ventures. And he um, he would come up with these surf bands, these other surf bands, the Marquettes and the Routers and uh, T-Bones. And the Marquettes, he would have Leon Russell, Earl Palmer, my dad, and uh, they'd be playing this, you know, one single called Out of Limits. All right? Well, Out of Limits becomes a a hit. Now they got to do an album. Now, once the album's done, now they get a big cast for a band, and they put a band on the road. All right, now that Marquette goes out. Now he comes up with another one that's called um, uh, The Routers. Does the same thing with The Routers. Same guys. Same, you know, he always uses the same guys. And uh, it just changes the name. It's called it The Routers. And that's the song that you hear um, in football stadiums around the country, that let's go, dun, 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 let's go, you know. That, uh, and, that's the routers. and of course, yeah, a, a lot of those, a, a lot of those bands were what we sometimes call one-hit wonders, too. Right? Yeah, one-hit wonders, exactly. And then the other one was the T-Bones, which was from the Alka-Seltzer commercial. And you know, I got to give is uh, Joe Saracino was made known as the hustler of hustlers of producers in town, but I got to give him a lot of credit, man. He really thought this stuff out. Because, you know, he saw that T-Bone commercial and said, this is cool, let's do this. And, he, and I think he took it to the Ventures first, and they said, no, nah, no, nah, we're not going to do that. So they put together a band, and he said to, uh, you know, Bill Bennett, who, you know, was running the Liberty, he said, hey, who do we have, what kind of name do we have? They must have had names already licensed or something. He says, well, we've got this name called the T-Bones. Okay, we'll call it T-Bones. If I only had known... And I was putting my quarters down. What's that? I said, if I'd only known when I was putting my quarters down to buy the T-Bone albums. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, and it, and, but it was, you know, my dad, listen, he said, there's music, there's a music business. Guys, sometimes it mixes. So, you know, he, he didn't, you know, he was just happy to be able to play a guitar, make a living, put his kids through school. Um, sometimes he liked the music. A lot of times he didn't. Don't forget, he, he like he said, I played on hundreds of hits. I made thousands of bombs. You know, it doesn't you know? And he said I never gave anybody their money back, so I was happy with. Them. Yeah, well, that's that, that's the business. Uh, and, and he talks about in some seminars that that he did later, and, and you gave us some film from those seminars. He he talks about yeah. some of those stories, and and one of them I remember he played this the same. Uh, Latin song for three different people. Do you want to tell us that story? Do you remember it? Well, yeah. I mean, Dad was always, Dad, you know, that was something that my dad always told these kids. And he said, listen, he said, what the difference, and I asked him, what's the difference between a specialist and a session player? And this is how he described it. He says, listen, you got a door in a studio. You don't know what's behind that door. You don't know what piece of music's there. So if you want, uh, the blues guy, you're going to put Eric Clampton there or B.B. King. Don't bring me in. But what if the guy gets in there and it's not just a blues lick, it's, oh, yeah, we got some reading involved here. And, we, and, you know, we need to jump to mandolin or we might need a 12-string here. You know, well, they can't do that. Uh, Segovia, you you know, bring him in for the classical part. Well, you need, you need to do a country lick now. Well, my father would know just enough, you know, to get by. You didn't have to be an expert. You want an expert, you get the expert. But you got to get, you know, my dad could do any of that. A little of this, a little of that through the studios, and that's that's what made, you know, it happen. You know, for the guitar players out there, um, he had a trick that he, you know, would tell everybody, that he, the younger guitar player says, I don't play traditional tuning. Every guitar, mandolin, bazooka, whatever it is, he says, I tune it like a guitar. So I know where I'm on that fretboard. If it's a banjo, I tune like a guitar. I don't do traditional tuning. He says, I can't tell John Williams in the middle of a session, you know, where I'm lost, that, oh, it's okay, though. It's traditional tuning. <laughs> you know, he'll get sorted out. <laughs> um, so he was very, you know, he was a practical guy. So the Spanish thing was, and he was really good at that. Um, you know, when he first started in the studios, they'd... Uh, they would call all the heavyweight guitar players at the time. They called Barney Ketzel, who's in the studios as well as one of the great jazzers. 
do you play classical guitar? And, you know, Barney said, no. Howard Roberts, do you play classical guitar? No. Herb Ellis, do you play classical guitar? No. And they get down to the guy talking to that school, new guy, do you play classical guitar? He said, yeah. And my father go in there and he'd do a Marlboro commercial with Lorendo Almeida, the great classical player. And, they, you know, and my father says, I use my pick. They don't really care. He's on You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so he's going and started his career. Well, your dad was famous for, for, for never saying no until he was too busy to say yes. I think that was one of his Exactly. 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 Now, there, exactly. Are, uh, there are a number of um, producers listed in the credits. And I also think, and tell me if I'm wrong in this one, that the financing of the Wrecking Crew seems to be kind of a documentary into itself. So can you tell us how yeah. you put together all those producers and how you raised the money for this? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, here's what happened. is I and my friends, all those producers, the, you know, you see my wife and myself and my brother and, and the other guy, and John Lee Adakis and Chris Hope, and those are all my friends that helped us out, and Mitchell Linden. They were all the guys that helped us out for the years and stuck with us. The executive producers came, when I say executive producers, they were the big, you know, they came late. When I say late, they came when we really needed them. You know, they were big donors. You know, when I started doing Kickstarter, you know, I was trying to figure out ways of creating these different, you know, donation levels. You know, we started with groupies. If you donated $100 or less, you were known as a groupie. If you donated $100 plus, you were known as a roadie. And then A&R at 300. And we got to the point where um, we had different levels. You know, it was a way of creating some kind of fun. But the one guy, when the first guy that donated $50,000 saw it at a um, um, screening in New York, it was Cliff Bernstein. And Cliff was, and it's funny because I didn't even meet him at that screening, which is amazing because it was so crazy. It was in New York at a club. And someone brought him, and um, all of a sudden, Cliff calls says, listen, I want to help you out. I want to give you $50,000. I went, oh, my God, thank you so much. And Cliff is the manager of uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and he was also the manager of Jimmy Page. Amazing guy. Okay. And, and then can also afford the same, it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people can afford it. But there's, you know, when I say that, I don't mean that in a bad way, but only a few people came to help. Cliff was one of them. Same day. I get, within an hour or two, Cliff, uh, um, Jerry Moss of A&M, Jerry had met us and said, listen, I want to give you guys $50,000. But, oh, my God. I'm thinking, listen, what can we do later today? <laughs> get going and we can be done. So that really helped us. And then there was another guy named Dennis Joyce. You know, of, you know Dennis is, was one of those guys that saw it. And he's an amazing character himself. He put out a film for... Um, George Clinton a few years ago and he just fell in love with the film and he felt the same way you know these stories need to be told and he was amazing and then you know I called uh, at the end when we were doing the Kickstarter you know I asked you know Herb Alpert and Herb said you know what if you get that 200000 that you need I'll give you that, that 50 to get you over the board I said great and wow. he was good to his word and he was awesome wow you know well we're so, um, we're we're beginning to get a little tight on time, and there's a couple other yeah, questions yeah. I, I really would like. Uh, after watching, sure. I've watched the film twice now. Um, about Carol. Carol Kay was the only woman in the wrecking crew, and she and yeah. the guys kidded that she was one of the guys. But she pointed Absolutely. out, and, and, and very nicely, you emphasized it with images, that before the 50s, women were very present in bands. There were many outstanding female musicians. Did you ever have any discussions with her or your dad or other Wrecking Crew members about how Carol came to be in the band and why she was the only woman who came to be in the band or in the group? No, really. They, they, it was funny because when I asked them, I, it's funny because I always talked to them. Of, she was nobody's girlfriend. You know, you know, I know yeah. who she was married to. We always talk about you know, sometimes, you know, she had some tough times with a couple of marriages. But no one ever looked at her as as the girl in the room. And, I, and this is where I say, which is, you know, I'm sure they gave her lots of crap. You know, I'm sure they gave her lots of grief as a woman, you know, in those days. Can you imagine men in those days? Yeah. But they also, they didn't treat her like, hey, you're just, a, you know, a token. She's a bass player. 
Jesus is not in that room, you know, as a, you know, a great example. When Wayne Campbell said, everybody in that room was a Michael Jordan, and I played with Michael Jordan all day long, and everybody there was Michael Jordan. As a bass player and a drummer and a guitar player, and she used bass and drums, I mean, bass and drums, bass and guitar, you can't have a weak link there. In those days, no. you only have one track. Right. So you can't blow it. You blow it, you're blowing the whole band. They're well, following the, her. The way you presented her in, in the film, she was not only an outstanding bass player, but she was a huge creative force on her own. And she, and she came up with some of the, the lines and the, the signatures of some of the, of the hits that came out. She was quite, yeah. and still is, I'm sure, quite a person. Yeah, no, she's a, she's an amazing, you know, amazing bass player, amazing, you know, innovator, you know, yeah. and and it's, you know, they were all there to do their job and if it, you know, come up with ideas, you know, and that was the greatest thing. There was, nowadays, that problem is with making music today, you know, when I say problem is sometimes you you, you don't have the band together. So they're laying down the drums, laying down, laying down the bass, come on in, we'll lay down the guitar. Well, yeah. you guess what? They're not in the room together, so they're not pushing each other. They're not taking each other in different directions. Mistakes don't happen. Right. So a mistake uh, that you just made, well, that's you can't do it because it, the other guys aren't able to follow. They're not there. I think what one of the things and, your film points out that there are limitations to Garage Band. Now that you've spent 18 years making a movie about your dad and the wrecking crew, um, in retrospect, do you think that rock and roll would have become the, the global force that it is today if the Wrecking Crew hadn't been there? You know, it would. It's uh, wrecking, uh, rock and roll was always going to be there. And that, the thing is, the record labels didn't trust it at the beginning. Like anything, they don't trust it. No one wants to spend money unless they're sure they're going to make money. Same thing with my doc. No one's going to give me any money unless they were sure they might have a chance. You know what I mean? It's all about the business. Now, you still had Nashville making records. You still had um, Motown doing their thing. And you still had yeah. New York and London. You know, it would have been different here. The only thing that these guys had, you know, they didn't, they had a lot to give to. They had a lot of studios. They had a lot of musicians. When I say a lot of musicians, 20 that were doing the rock and roll. And like we said earlier, I will, the only reason the older guys didn't want to do it because rock and roll was, it was beneath them. And maybe it was a job that they didn't want to do. So my dad could take that job and take a chance on getting in. But it was, well, it I, would have been, it would have, it would have been different. It would have been different. And, and uh, I think one of the testimonies to that is that you have a, a, a film clip of, I forget who it was, but he was saying that uh, George Martin told him that the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, was actually yes. an attempt to do better than an album at the yeah, Wrecking Crew. Yeah, that was Jimmy uh, Webb said that. That was Jimmy uh, Webb that said that. Yeah. That 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 I'm tells sorry, me I that. Cut you off on that. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's all right. We're in a conversation. Uh, that but tells me that it, uh, this was a huge force. Absolutely. You know, and they didn't know they were a huge force. You know, the, I think what, to go back to your question about rock and roll today. There was a drummer of today. His name's Mark Schulman. He plays for Pink. He's like the hot young guy, you know. Yeah, I know he great is. Great drummer, amazing drummer. And Mark said something to me once. He said in an interview, he said, "You know what? You could hate everything Earl Palmer and Hal Blaine ever did, or maybe not even ever heard it, and which would be impossible." But he said, "The difference is, he says, anybody we were influenced by, our teachers were influenced by them." Whatever we were doing or they were doing, I mean, their, their teachers, they all copied what Earl and Hal were doing. Those fills, those shuffles, all that stuff came out of those two guys in L.A. at the time. And then Jim Gordon, and you know, you had Jim Keltner later, and, you know, those guys. You learn from what came before you. Well, these guys, Hal and Earl and Leon and my dad and Carol, they didn't really have much to learn from before because they are at beginning. Thing. They're beginning of rock and roll. You know, they're oh. they're doing things that they don't know that they're doing that's going to be copied later. 
Well, they, they, they taught the rest of us, and boy, are we glad they did. And unfortunately, we are out of time, so I want to make sure that everybody knows where they can see the film. Uh, here in Los Angeles, it's uh, opening this Friday at the New Art Theater in Santa Monica. Uh, and I understand the Wrecking Crew members Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, and Don Randy and Bill Pittman are going to be at the evening screenings this Friday. You're going to be there yep. Saturday evening and Sunday. Am I right on there. that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Five, the 7.30 show on Friday sold up at the 5 o'clock show, and I'll have the guys there. They'll be there and uh, for the 5 o'clock, and the next night I'll be there. I'm hoping I'll be there with Don Randy and uh, Joe Osborne as well the next night. Um, okay. But we're there for a week. And, if they, right. you know, anybody can always go to the Wrecking Crew site to check out the times around the country. Well, the t- like you said, tickets are still available for most of the other showings, but Friday at 7.30 is sold out. Uh, the New Art Theater, incidentally, is on Santa Monica Boulevard, just west of the 405. It's right next to a big, beautiful video store at the corner of Sawtell. For those of you outside of Los Angeles, <clears throat> and there is world and reality outside of Los Angeles, I know, the film will Thank continue God. the rollout that started last month across the U.S. and Canada. So go to the website. That's www.thewreckingcrewfilm.com. There's a list of cities and dates there. And while you're there, you can buy a copy of the DVD at the website for yourself and well, check not, out. Yeah, the, so you will be able you will be able to buy the DVD soon. Yeah, it comes okay. out, but I will be taking. Uh, I'll put your name in, and I'll let you know when it comes out. You can pre-order a copy of the DVD, and while there you're you there, check out uh, a Wrecking Crew T-shirt or coffee mug or apron or even a bowling shirt and an autographed guitar. There's lots of stuff there. Denny, thank you so much for joining thank me today, so and thank you for this film. Awesome. Have a great day. That was that great interview from March of this year with Danny T- Danny Tedesco. Uh, we have to take a break right now, but when we return, don't go away, and you're not going to want to miss our next classic interview with Mallory Trinnell and Lauren Harding, the women of Crimson Calamity, who just released their debut CD at a party in Hollywood last weekend, and it was packed. I didn't think they could get that many people in the hotel cafe, all right? The CD is All in the Cards. That's the name of it, All in the Cards. And you can find it on their website, and that's www.crimsoncalamity, all one word, crimsoncalamitymusic, all one word, dot com. That's www.crimsoncalamitymusic.com. And I think it's also out on iTunes now. Now, remember, this interview was conducted last March. So don't call in, don't email in, no matter what I tell you during the interview, because that's all pre-recorded. Now we're going to take a quick break. Cameo Entertainment Group and CyberStation USA are now part of Stitcher, a free radio app for your smartphone. With Stitcher, you can listen to live programming as well as archive radio programming right on your phone. To obtain Stitcher, just go to the App Store for your particular phone. Go to search, then type in Stitcher. That's Stitcher. S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R. S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R. Then download. It's that simple. Stitcher, a free radio app for your smartphone. Convenient access to live and archive CyberStation USA programming on your mobile phone. That's Stitcher. S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R. CyberStation USA. Always on the go. And we're back here at Music Friday. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan, and uh, we wanted to remind you that we are not live today. We're on vacation. The whole Music Friday team is on vacation, so don't call in and don't email in. However, we're still going to give you a word from our wonderful sponsor, Solar City. Solar power is a huge win-win for homeowners, but a lot of people are reluctant to take the plunge into solar, you know, because of the upfront costs. They can get expensive. Well, with Solar City, you can go solar for zero upfront cost on approved credit. That's right, zero cost. Solar City will come out and then install a solar system on your home for free, and you only pay for the power you use, just like you do from the utility company. But you pay for a lot less power because the sun is making it for you. As much as half of your electricity can be made by the sun. So Solar City pays for the system, it insures the system, and it maintains the system, and all you have to do is just enjoy the savings. So if you've been ready for solar, but solar hasn't quite been ready for you, it is now at Solar City, America's number one clean energy provider. And the way you find out is you make a phone call. I'm going to give you a number. You knew I was going to give you a number, so you have your pen and pencil ready. It's 909-618-6937. 
That's 909-618-6937. And if you tell them I sent you, Music Friday Live, Patrick O'Heffernan, tell them I sent you, you'll get a discount. Okay, we are going to listen to the classic interview of Crimson Calamity. So don't call in. This is not live, but you're going to enjoy it anyway. Well, what is country music these days? Uh, A lot of critics and a lot of artists are asking that question. Uh, The old-style hat music is still with us. That's the music where everybody in the band wears a cowboy hat. But since the days of the buckaroos and ghost riders in the sky, a lot of very talented folks have added rock and blues and even a bit of rap to country music. The result is what I call uh, not-your-father's country music. Well, a band that can write, play, and sing not-your-father's country music with a flair and an attitude is the duo known as Crimson Calamity, a.k.a. Mallory Trinnell and Lauren Harding. Mallory and Lauren have taken country music to a new level with a power and a skill that commandeers your ears and won't let go until you're dripping with sweat and begging for more. Their breakout song, Line Em Up and Shoot Em Down, was soon followed by three equally irresistible tunes from their debut EP, All in the Cards, which is due out at the end of the month. But we don't have to wait until the end of the month to hear it because Crimson Calamity are here now with us, and they brought their music. Lauren, welcome to Music Friday Live, and Mallory, welcome back to Music Friday Live. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Okay. Uh, Before we go any further, so our audience can tell you apart, could each of you say your name and the instrument you play? Uh, Lauren, you first. I am Lauren, and uh, I am a vocalist with Crimson Calamity. And Mallory? I'm Mallory, and uh, I I, I tinker on a few instruments, but I'm mostly a vocalist in Crimson Calamity as well. Okay. Well, Mallory, when you were on the show in November, you hinted at Crimson Calamity, but we didn't talk about it. And now you have an EP coming out. Congratulations. Well, thank you. We're excited. Well, before I delve into your deep, dark histories, uh, let me remind our listeners that the EP is called in, It's in the Cards. It'll be released on March 31st online. And then you have a CD release party. I believe it's April 4th at the Hollywood's famous Hotel Cafe. Um, is there any way that folks can pre-order your album? We are not doing a pre-order. You have to buy it when it comes out. <laughs> okay, all right. So, and and if they're going to keep track of you, they should go to your website, right? That's correct. Uh, com. Okay. Now, given the nature of this EP and of Crimson Calamity, I have to ask you, do either of you have country roots, you know, Training in Nashville, cowboys singing in your family, drunken boyfriends who died playing cards, any of that stuff? All <laughs> <laughs> um, well, of the above. We, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we both um, grew up singing our whole lives, and um, I definitely grew up listening to, you know, Patsy and Johnny and Elvis and all of the greats. And um, I had a bit of, you know, vocal training um Growing up, and a lot of that was was country, like, you know, I sang a lot of country songs, and um, Mallory grew up in Utah and on a farm, so <laughs> she definitely yep. that, knows firsthand the country life. <laughs> okay, well, that counts. Uh, well, speaking of drunken boyfriends, of which we don't really need to speak, uh, a lot of country songs are about alcohol, but usually from a male point of view and often somewhat celebratory. Now, there's a song on your album which um, is kind of from the other side of the glass. And uh, let's take a listen to this. Yeah, that's a perfect way of saying it. I think you're talking about rock bottom, right? Here it is, rock bottom.
Well, uh, you two don't mince words, do you? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> um, I especially I love the way your techno prisoners style of music matches those lay down the law lyrics, and and there's a great line in there. Um, Whiskey's a bitch to get out of your system is one of them. Another one is you're not going to lose your rocks if you ain't got them. Um, would you care to elaborate <laughs> on either of those lines? I mean, to me, it's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this, in our minds, this young lady's just about had enough, and uh, if uh, if this gentleman wants to, you know, have a little bit more fun with her, he's going to have to take care of some things. Okay, all right. Well, I, I, congratulations. I think you 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 put the style and the lyrics together absolutely perfectly. Um, Thank you. To get you. that message across. Uh, we're, we're talking with Mallory Trinnell and Lauren Harding, better known as Crimson Calamity, about their new album, All in the Cards. And you can talk with them. You can call in at uh, 347-215-7511. Or you can email your questions in at musicfridaylive at gmail.com. That's musicfridaylive at gmail.com. Okay. Oh, we do have an email already. Uh, Lauren in Massachusetts, who lists herself as number one fan. She wants to know, where do you draw your inspiration from when you write a song? Do you typically have lyrics down first and then come up with a melody, or does the tune come to you and then you add the lyrics? Um, for, I think, you know, every song is different for us. Um, you know, for example, Rock Bottom, Mallory, just we were, you know, just, talking about some frustrations and Mallory started playing the melody and, uh, you know, we both just started writing and, and that song came to us in about 20 minutes. Whereas, you know, um, our song dead man's hand that took a, a lot longer for us to work out. And that definitely was, you know, start, we started that song with lyrics and, um, worked on the melody from there. So it just depends on the song for us. Okay. Um, incidentally, would it be fair to say that um, you now that listening to that song and the way you lay down the law there, would it be fair to say that you're continuing the history of what the New York Times called feminist country, that songs written and sung by women like Dolly Parton and Miranda Lambert and Ashley Monroe that put self-directed women in the center of the music? Well, we are definitely big advocates and fans of all those ladies you just mentioned, so I would have to say yes. I think that would be more than fair to say that we we admire them and we want to continue the movement that they have started for sure. Definitely. And then, are they part of your inspiration? Oh, oh yeah, sure. Definitely. Okay. Well, I want to play um, uh, one of those songs, and, and maybe one that's a little ambiguous on the feminist front, but this is a... This is a song from uh, your your Tuesday acoustic video series. Like the love I have for a wanted man to only me his heart would speak. A price on his head and he wanted him dead and I suppose that he was too. But to many that man was a hero and it happened way too soon. Oh, to avenge her man's murder? We kind of leave that open-ended. We, we want the listener to fill in and decide. <laughs> oh, I, th- I think she is. <laughs> right. Yes, now, definitely. Uh, I've, heard two, I've heard two versions of that song, uh, the one we just played uh, and then the acoustic video session version, and both are fabulous. 
But this one is Thank pretty you. heavy rock. And later on in the, the song, you let loose with a very solid rock guitar riff, and then you slide kind of back into country twang. Did, did, did you have to work on that one to get the rock country balance just, just right? Yeah, that one was a little bit more of a challenge for sure. Um, I I think that Lauren and I both definitely love classic rock as well as country, and we're big fans of people like Brandy Carlisle, but then we're also big fans of people like Grace Potter and the Nocturnals. So we, we kind of wanted to infuse both of those elements into our sound because um, it just comes natural to us. So that one, it took some balancing, but I, I think we got it for the most part. <laughs> I think you got it too. Uh, while we're on the topic, uh, tell us about the acoustic video sessions. Now, I've seen one of them, which seemed to be taped in a cave. Um, and I know that the We Are the West Band does taping in a cave for the acoustics. Is that why you, you two rent a cave with your musicians? It was actually, it's an old gold mine that um, our director knew about. And we thought it would be a kind of a cool, because we definitely, uh, you know, have nods to the Wild West and, definitely have elements of that with our within our aesthetic and in our writing and we thought that would be a pretty cool idea to go shoot a video in um you know a live acoustic video in an old abandoned gold mine um so that's what that was and the other ones we we filmed around different areas and um for the other videos and they're all live and acoustic you want to tell people where they can see them uh, yeah, you them on our YouTube. Go ahead, Mallory. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was just going to say YouTube.com slash Crimson Calamity Music. We're going to be releasing um, one video each week before the EP drops. So you can get a little taste before you buy the full thing. And incidentally, for uh, for those of you who are just now tuning in to, to them, um, they're two beautiful women, and uh, they've got the costume down perfectly, so you really do want to look at the videos, too. Um, I was, I'm kind of curious, is how are you received in the country world? Well, it's funny you bring that up because we're just barely about to kind of like dive in head first um, and, and really try and see. We're, we're planning to go to Nashville uh, sometime this spring and uh, play a few shows and, and kind of connect with some folks we've met before out there. And, um, and we're, we're interested to see what the answer to that yeah. question is. <laughs> we we have we have received a, a couple reviews from country blogs who who seem to have a very positive um you know positive things to say which is great and um that's definitely making us even more excited to go to Nashville and and see what happens. Well, along those lines, we just got a very interesting email in from uh Mary Jane in Austin, Texas and Mary Jane says Women are becoming a very big deal in country music, maybe even the dominant deal in country music. So I think that your timing is very good. You should check out Maddie and Tay. Oh, we love Maddie and Tay. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we <you>. do. <laughs> we think they're and awesome. For, for my uh, for my listeners who don't know Maddie and Tay, uh, you should um, go to YouTube or Vimeo and check out their video. I think it's called A Girl, Girl in a on Country, a country Song. Song. Yeah, it's really up in hell. So. It's hilarious. Yeah, their yeah, video is um, hilarious. For for the women in the audience, look at it first before you show it to your the men in your life. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's hysterical. So, and and you know, I I think that um, um, Mary Jane in Austin is onto something there because I see an awful lot of of we used to call them girls with guitars, and they aren't anymore. Mm-hmm. They're they're becoming a dominant force in country. Um, not all of them are what you would call feminist. Uh, there are a lot, an awful lot of girls with guitars singing and about getting drunk in pickup trucks with their boyfriends. But um, there's a lot of very, very good female music out there. So I think that she's right. Your timing is exactly perfect. Um, now, you two have been working solo and also together since you studied Broadway music in college. Now, I understand that you sat down and you just sort of purposely laid out this band as how you're going to collaborate. Uh, am I correct in that? Yeah, it, it ended up being a very purposeful venture. Um, we'd sang together for years already, and one day we we were writing a song together for a completely different purpose, and it happened to be line them up and shoot them down, and um, we kind of just got this feeling and kind of looked at each other and went, I think we're going to be in a band. I think we're going to do something with this. And it just evolved and evolved and evolved. And 
you can't stop it now. It's doing what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, since you mentioned uh, line them up and shoot them down, uh, let's uh, let's let's take a listen to that. So, first of all, which of you is the best shot? <laughs> what kind of shots are we talking about? Um, well, <laughs> later on, you've got a song that talks about a 45. So, what about that shot? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're about equal. Okay. I know. We, yeah, we haven't really had a we haven't had a competition with that yet, quite yet. But uh, I think we're going to. That's definitely in order. That'll be a great yeah, video. Yeah. Uh-huh. You could do that one with Dead Man's Hand. Yes, definitely. True. Right. Now, Good. <laughs> a little high noon. Uh, seriously, uh, it seems that each of the songs, as you said, is is unique. Dead Man's Hand tells a long story, and Rock Bottom and Line Them Up get to the point very quickly. And the one we're going to play later, Pistols, um, is kind of an advisory um, to people, um, to guys. Uh, is, it, uh, is it safe that, that, that you have approach each differently when you sit down and write them? I think you, you describe that uh, that you have to because of the way they are, but but does one of you just kind of come to the other and say, I got an idea? Yeah, we both come to each other with ideas for sure, and we we have been, you know, just continually writing. There's a, there's a whole bunch of other Crimson Calamity tunes that are going to be coming at you later on and um, and in the live show as well, and and so we we have a good energy between the two of us. There's a complete trust there, so you know, I'll bring an idea to Lauren or she'll bring an idea to me and we'll just sit down and we'll work on it till we feel like it's right and we just try to remain open and kind of be little conduits and let the energy come to us and and write good tunes. Okay. Um, Susanna in L.A. just emailed in and she says, when I go to see you live, are you going to be carrying six shooters? (laughs) If they let us bring them in. Yeah, I don't know if they'll let us go in the venue with those, but... Not in California, you don't. Okay. Uh, You (laughs) quote uh, your band's namesake, uh, Calamity Jane, and she said at one point, I figure if a girl wants to be a legend, she should just go ahead and be one. Are you two on your way to becoming a legend with this band? We wouldn't mind. Yes, we definitely wouldn't mind. We definitely are avid, you know, that, that quote definitely has spoken... You know, it speaks to us, and we're both advocates of, of, you know, kids in general just really following their dreams, and especially, you know, young girls, you know, you know just being confident and following their dreams no matter what and um, not letting anybody tell them no. So I think we uh, we hope to follow that ourselves and also hope to inspire that as well. Well, I think you're doing it. Uh, it sounds to me like you're doing it. Now, we have time for just one more song and this is a song that's really solid country Um, but of course you know it's got the uh, uh, Crimson Calamity twist to it this is about a pair of pistols
You know, somehow, as I listen to this song, I, I get the, uh, the feeling that, uh, that this is about a lot more than pistols. Uh, so <laughs> did, did one of you find yourself left at home by a man and a couple of 45s laying on the, uh, the kitchen table? Or is there another source for that, uh, that story? It's more of a metaphor. <laughs> I thought um, so. Yeah, I just, it's a public service announcement. You got to be careful, you know. A lot of these guys, they want to date a girl who's a pistol, but if you're going to leave her at home, you just better be prepared for those consequences. That's all I'm saying. That's all we're trying to say. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, well, you do it quite well. I'm, uh,. <laughs> And particularly since I gather that neither of you are really gun-toting cowgirls with a pickup truck idling outside and an open bottle of Jim Beam on the front seat. Uh, so you, <laughs> or maybe I'm wrong. Um, now, you've got a, a CD party uh, coming up, and, and why don't you tell us about that again? It's going to be at the Hotel Cafe? Yes, we're playing at the Hotel Cafe on April 4th at 11 p.m., and uh, it's going to be a fun night. 11 p.m., huh? No, you got the, the yes, prime spot for the Hotel Saturday Cafe. Okay. Yeah. And, and you're going to, will you have a full band with you? Oh, yeah. Will. Okay. Yep, we're going to have a big old party. It's going to be fun. When you, uh, you you play with a band, who all's in the band? We have a wonderful pair uh, that play with us continually. Their names are Jess and Jake Perry. They're a married couple. They, they're on guitar and bass. And, um, and we we uh, also have a drummer, and uh, we have an accessories player named Adam who's probably going to join us. And, and we may bring in a fiddle player and all kinds of stuff. We're just going to go full on with this. So it'll be a really fun time. Whole hog, as they say. Well, I, I take it that uh, the two regular musicians that you mentioned, they're the two that uh, uh, we can see in your uh, your acoustic uh, videos, right? That's yes, correct. they yes. are. Okay, she's a heck of a bass player. I really, that's yeah, very, is. very nimble. Yeah, very good. And again, I want to recommend everybody go to, to the the uh, Crimson Calamity YouTube channel and check out their acoustic series because it's a lot of fun. And also, just because it's acoustic doesn't mean you don't get to see them in their full glory. They are fully <laughs> costumed and they're fully singing. This isn't uh, sitting around in their uh, in their living room someplace. <clears throat> It's actually it's in a in a gold mine. Well, we as as we're, we apparently we're having too much fun because we are just about out of time. And uh, oh. um, and I love your fascination with the Wild West, and I love the way you have uh, incorporated it into not only your music but your imagery too. Um, but like I say, just, despite the fascination with with your music, we are out of time. But one last question. Now that you've got, now you're about to release this album. You're going to do some touring to support the album. Do you have other songs lined up? Are you ready to go for another album late, maybe later on in the year? Yeah, we we're writing all the time, and and we're definitely going to be releasing more music, you know, in the near future after this one. So, um, definitely yes. Okay, and should we also be on the lookout for um, solo performances? I have a feeling you'll you'll see that from time to time, but this is this is our our baby right now, and we we love being in this band, and we're best friends, and we we love performing with each other. So we're just going to do it as long as we possibly can. Okay, well I hope that's a long time. Uh, Mallory and Lauren, congratulations on a fabulous foray into country music, and based on this EP, I think that the, the legend status that Calamity Jane talked about is not too far in your future. Thank you both for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having us, Patrick. You've been listening to Music Friday Live with Patrick O'Heffernan from Blog Talk Radio and our radio affiliates on the CyberStation USA network. If you like our Facebook page and you follow our Twitter feeds, you'll get real-time updates on our guests. Our producer is Lars Christensen. Our program director is Jason Bartleman. Our intern is Angeline Serrano. If you download these and other Music Friday programs at blogtalkradio.com. Check our Twitter stream and our Facebook page, and we will update you on the guests for next Friday. Meanwhile, have a great musical weekend.